is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from our coverage of Nash Tag 2023, plus the discussion that Jorn Schottenberg, Hisuin ex Chief Scientific Officer, and Dean Tai, and I held about Histo Index's zonal analysis of fibrosis, which you can find as part of episode two for season four. This conversation comes from our patient advocate discussion with Nash Knowledge founder Tony Villiotti and Fatty Liver Alliance founder and CEO Mike Patel. The conversation starts with Tony and Mike describing the high levels of enthusiasm that began at AASLD and really built at NASHTAG. As it became clear that we now have drug trials that appear to meet all the criteria for approval. Louise Campbell extends this thought even further, that new medications plus greater awareness of the breadth of integrated metabolic disease is leading to increased collaboration with other specialties that do not treat the liver, notably cardiology and endocrinology. Mike raises the idea that patients with diabetes and or obesity might be taking GLP-1s or dual glucagon agents for those diseases, which could lead to de facto combination therapy once new drugs are approved with NASH indications. Louise points out ways this might be a double-edged sword, that the earlier agents might be defatting so well that the newer drugs might almost look like they don't work in some patients where they're having effects. We'll have to see how that plays out over time. The rest of the conversation focuses on things we do not know about the drugs, how they interact, how long they'll work, and what downsides might be. As this conversation ends, Louise emphasizes the importance of providing professional and patient education and training to make sure all the new medications are used properly. NASH Tech 2023 was a watershed moment for fatty liver disease, the place where exciting drug development readouts, powerful academic work on non-invasive tests, and the willingness to dive into the toughest questions align in a meeting that Scott Friedman described as being like drinking out of a fire hose. So just sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, ponder, listen again if you need to, and when you're done, join the conversation in our LinkedIn discussion group. Tony Villiotti. And from my perspective, this momentum, I think, began when I was at the liver meeting in November. Just the wave of enthusiasm and positivity over the likelihood of having a medical solution that will help at least some people you know, has really just, you know, in from our perspective, just raised our urgency in getting the message out there that this is a disease you should be aware of. You know, lack of awareness is a big issue. It's a disease you should be aware of because, you know, some answers are coming. I think there's still some realities that have to be faced along that path. But from our standpoint, I just think we feel an increased urgency to get the message out there. Mike Bottel. Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts and I agree with what Tony said. Um, I'll go back to one other meeting too, the Mosaic meeting that I attended. There was a lot of discussion there about the new therapies that were coming out. So two points. One is this is a message of hope. It offers a future. We were seeing a lot of graveyards in the past, and I hope those days are gone. And now we have something to talk about. When you think about the first line uh, that the patients are seeing are the primary care physicians, as an example, as long as there was no therapy on the horizon, it was like, yeah, okay, you know what you need to do is exercise and you have to control your diet and, you know, we'll see you again in a year. Now, at least they have to take it more seriously because these agents are coming and they're coming soon. I go back to that hope is a really big thing for people and for patients. It makes all the difference in the world to know that there's something coming. Louise Campbell. I echo exactly what Tony and Michael have just said. Also, what I got a sense of towards the end of 2022 was the alignment of the other specialities as well. So the potential for more patients to become aware of liver as a problem. So last year we saw the American Association of um, Heart put in looking for and um, 
um, recommending NAFLD and NASH as an assessment for patients with heart disease, published this month and released at the end of 2022, was the New American Association of Diabetes Standards of Care, whereby they advocate in recommendation four that um, patients are screened for NAFLD and NASH, particularly if you have type 2 diabetes or risks of heart disease. So I think we're now seeing that alignment and the fact that these medications are becoming available means I think that alignment is going to get stronger. I think we'll discuss later on in this episode some of the data that was presented with semaglutide, but I'm certainly seeing a few more people who have taken semaglutide coming for fibre scans from a different background. That's probably encouraging because I think there's a wealth of data being missed in that population because we're not doing non-invasive liver techniques. We've got a drug approved in a population where we're missing some data that we're collecting in trials now. So I think that sense of enthusiasm coupled with new medication, coupled with now a recognition within strong cohorts of patients, we might get that message out there that offers really, really good potential through 2023 if we can get pathways in that are correct in a way that doesn't overstretch healthcare. And I think that's a big thing, certainly in the UK at the moment. So are you also seeing that there'll be more enthusiasm from the multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary approach? I think, yes. Certainly what we're seeing from a US perspective and the rest of the world do tend to follow. And I know some of our guidelines need to be updated. They're out of date. They're several years out of date. So they were probably due to be updated. But I think what we haven't seen before is this drive by cardiology and endocrinology to mention the word NAFLD, NASH, fatty liver disease. We're now seeing it in guidelines. And when you certainly get the American Association of Diabetes saying in the standards of care for patients with diabetes that you should be looking for NAFLD and NASH, then we see a game changer because that's a recommendation of a standard of care that's measurable. You are either doing it or you don't do it. That is a measurable outcome and a key performance indicator for me, even if it's only suggested and not necessarily put in the diagrams, but it's recommendation four, I believe. So that is a game changer. Endocrinology are at the table. There was a drive at the end of last year looking at FIB4 predicting cardiac outcomes. I genuinely get a sense there is, certainly in the field, whether or not it's on the grassroots level yet, a change in momentum to join and the liver portfolio or to take control of it and give the liver disease to liver specialists. So I do think there's a change. Roger, can I ask one more question, if, if that's okay? It's possible down the road that it'll be a combination therapy world or there'll be other therapeutics coming out. However, in the short term, like Louise was saying, so if endocrinologists are using drugs like the GLP-1s, they are indicated for obesity, or they're not indicated, are they indicated for, for obesity, I guess, and, and uh, yeah. diabetes? Uh, but. Semaglutide has Wagovi, which is an obesity drug, and Terzepatide, I believe, has or is getting an, a, an obesity indication from Unjaro. So that would be the two, yeah. Yeah, and so when you look at the makeup, the demographics of NAFLD-NASH patients, as we all know, obesity type 2 diabetes diabetes are a big part of that for most people. So it's possible that those specialists might be writing the drugs for the weight side of it. And the liver doctors could be writing these new therapies as they come out and they could end up getting combination anyway. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about that. I think you're right. One of my concerns is that when we look at semaglutide data, when people go to review patients who are on semaglutide for diabetes, for example, that they will not find fatty liver because they've already defatted the liver with the semaglutide. So they'll say, well, these patients 
patients aren't relevant. The fact that the drug was already working, because we don't have that predator, we're going to miss a section of patients in that. So I think that's a risk that we take with that. You're perfectly right. We've got semaglutide that is also, as we know, in a significant number of trials within NASH. It was a very good presentation that I'll certainly come on to later, where it was looked in combination therapy with the Gilead products. What struck me towards the end of last year in one of the podcasts was, yes, the resmeterone data is extremely pertinent and extremely encouraging, but it only ticks 25% of the population. So that means there's another 75% where drugs need to be targeted at. It doesn't mean we've solved the problem. It means we're starting to get a really good feel. And yes, you've said the, the graveyard may be less full. There will be still drugs, I'm sure, that fall into the graveyard. There will also be other ones that are stopped earlier in the pathway because they're not showing any efficacy in comparison to drugs like resmeterone and I suppose a beta-codic acid and the next ones are cabs off the rank I suppose. So yes you will get combination therapy. It was a big fear in hepatitis C that you would just get one doctor prescribing one drug and then somebody would add another drug without the evidence that these two drugs mixed. It's a risk but it's also something that happens naturally in medication prescribing. So spoiler alert to our audience, the conversation with Jorn and Dean Ty from Histoindex and me tomorrow night, which was actually recorded the day before Christmas, will be, I think, highly relevant to this. What Histoindex has been able to do is to clarify what zone of the liver different agents might be affecting. So, in fact, it isn't just that it's working for 25% of patients. It's There are specific characteristics about those patients and probably some specific characteristics about the liver, although we haven't gotten quite that far yet, where resmeterone is more effective versus where OCA might be more effective versus other drugs that come in line. So when we say we've got two drugs that each work 25% of the time, right, one of the questions is, well, have we covered half the patients? Have we covered 25% of the patients twice? And how do we know how to get the right drug to the right patient? Maybe it's working 100% of the time in a small subset. Right. So as we have more drugs, we'll learn a lot more about that. And I think, you know, when Luis talks about the semi-combination data, which we'll get to in a minute, this, these are the kinds of things that we're starting to touch on. You know, the interesting thing about the liver is that there are so many hypothesized modes of action because so much stuff is going on in there that it might not be realistic to think that any one drug will have a long-term effect in monotherapy on 75 or 80% of patients. We think that the fruxifermin data is pretty heroic, and that doesn't quite get to 50% on the hard measures, but it gets close, really close. Roger, the, I mean, the other thing is too, I don't think we know because it hasn't been long enough how long patients are going to have to stay on the therapies too. This is not a, I'm sick, take this medication and now you're cured. This is very likely going to be something that can recur. Yeah, that's a good question, Mike, because I, I think, you know, all these drugs, I know, you know, from my own experience with, you know, post-transplant, with the anti-rejection drugs, you know, these these drugs have some side effects, ramifications that become evident over time. You know, a lot of the answers have yet to come once people are on a drug for an extended period of time, what else is going to happen to their body? So I think that's a question for the future, but, but you know, kind of goes back to how long will people be on a drug? If, if it's a short burst, that may be minimal. But I think in all these drugs, it's not going to be the kind of thing where someone can take a pill and then walk over their couch and eat a half a pizza and drink some beer and think are cured. So a lot of this story is still to be written. Yeah, although the experience with statins would suggest that people are going to do that, whether it's a good idea or not. And I agree with you totally, Tony. I suppose it all comes back to education. You don't get put on a pill or any medication without education. There was a presentation earlier on today by um, Suzanne Shrapton on diet, lifestyle and bariatric surgery. And lifestyle will remain the key stone of all of the treatments, whether or not you're on medication or not on medication. Because yes, there may be some side effects for some patients that they come off or individuals 
individuals. So it is a way of tailoring that, but everything's going to come with education. If you can come off a medication because you've improved your diet and lifestyle through that education process, then you would do so to reduce those side effects and to reduce any effect of that. If you then need to go back on it, whether or not that is what these medications offer us, then that may be an option. But I don't see as that being particularly dissimilar to somebody with autoimmune flares that we put on steroids every now and again to actually control the flare to do that. There gives more scope of combination of lifestyle diet within the NAFLD and NASH community with the enhanced education that's going to come with any medication that comes out will come out with programs to locate, to to educate, to tick various boxes to get access to medications. We know these are not going to be one size fits all. They're not going to be available to everybody. Everybody can have access to education and training. And that's that's including staff, myself, patient advocates, groups throughout the world. What can we do with these medications to enhance the way that they're distributed, the way that they're developed, and also the way that the pathway fits the communities that they are meant to serve? There's a whole network behind any release of these medications. But some of the figures are, f- are very, very good early stages. So encouragement and excitement, I suppose, for 2023. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episodes from Nashtag, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com and we'll try to get you some support. We will be back next week. Our topic is in flux due to some commercial considerations, but whatever we do will be interesting, energized, and follow in the spirit of this amazing meeting. Until then, stay safe. Surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now.